Let me invite you please to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to open your word and to worship you in it. We pray that you'd give us wisdom, give us a submissive spirit, give us understanding that we would know you and know your word. We recognize our deep dependence upon you to unveil the truths of your word. Um, we pray that it would be effective in our lives and in your people this morning. We ask, Father, if there's any among us that do not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, that as the Word, your Word, goes forth, we pray that you would illuminate their minds, turn their hearts to you, that, might, that they might have life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes when we hear assaults against the truth of the Gospel, we can feel like the waves are crashing all around us. From the vantage point of our opponents, those that would stand against the Gospel, they might think that they're leveling the foundations of the Gospel, much like this image. But I trust that you understand that this picture that we're about to see might represent something of how turbulent it makes God's waters. In other words, regardless of the assault from the world, from the devil, and even from our flesh that arises against the Word of God and the person of God, God stands unflinching, unblushing, true to Himself, true to His Word, faithful to His promises, and right in His actions. God's character shines forth in the environment of man's sinfulness. God's character shines forth in the environment of man's sinfulness. To broaden that statement out just a little bit, to give us a little flavor for the passage we are studying, what God speaks is true, and His truth stands in the face of man's lies. What God does and requires is right. And His righteousness is further demonstrated in the context of man's unrighteousness. And what God promises will be fulfilled and His faithfulness shines in the light of man's unfaithfulness. We are in Romans chapter 3. Let's look at the text, please then what advantage has the Jews? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For how then, or then how, could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being convicted or condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? 
as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Well, these are some tough passages and we have little time. At the end of chapter 2, Paul has just ensured that his readers understand that being physically born as a Jew and being physically circumcised does not prepare you for judgment to receive the praise of God. Rather, he writes, you can be ready for God's praise. You can be prepared for God's praise as those who have been spiritually born, spiritually circumcised, and later he'll fill in some of the gaps of this to help us to understand that this spiritual birth and this spiritual circumcision is a result of God's declaration of our righteousness through faith. And he equates this with being perfectly obedient to the law. Justification, I know I talk about this regularly because it's at the heart of gospel ministry, justification is the forever removal of our sin, the forever declaration of God that we are righteous. It comes through faith, not faith in general, but faith specific, faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where Jesus laid down His life as a once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. And so that declaration of righteousness prepares us to receive the glorious praise of God. Physical circumcision and physical birth as a Jew do not do that. And as we'll come to the conclusion later, dwelling as the people, dwelling among the people of God in a church environment does not prepare you, does not prepare you to stand before God. Only embracing what is proclaimed in the gospel prepares you for the praise of God. All right. Well, if that's the case, Paul, in physical birth as a Jew doesn't, doesn't give me any standing before God and, and physical circumcision doesn't, doesn't help me, then what exactly is the advantage of being a Jew? And so Paul now goes on to deal with some of the logical objections to his teaching, and that's what we have here at the beginning of chapter 3. The first item that we will come across is that the Jewish people and I would say, by extension and implication, the church today has been given a stewardship of God's promises. And that stewardship of God's promises is an advantage. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Then, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. If there is no guarantee of a well done, thou good and faithful servant, because I'm an Israelite, or because I've been circumcised in obedience to the law, what is my advantage? And Paul answers this theoretical question by saying, you have been entrusted. The word there actually has the root word of faith. You've been entrusted. You've been given a faith trust of the oracles of God. God has given you His written and articulated words. The word oracles is the, the plural of logos. It's logion. It's the, the proclamations of God. God has entrusted to you. He has given you a faith entrustment of the 
proclamations of God. All of the commandments. All of the proclamations of God's character. All of the promises of God were given to the Jews as a stewardship. And remember this, friends. A stewardship requires what? Faithfulness. That's what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4. Moreover, it is required in stewards, those that have been entrusted with something, that a man be found faithful. And so the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The question is, were they faithful? The Bible reiterates this wonderful gift of God's Word in Deuteronomy 4.8 when God is describing the blessed state of being an Israelite. He says this in Deuteronomy 4.8, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? We don't have time to, to really deliberate about the blessing that it is to be the people that receive the law because the law, we understand from our vantage point on the side of the cross, we are very clear that the law pro- produces a realization of our sinfulness. But we have to understand that God gave the people of Israel the law for their good. Functioning in accordance with God's standard is the way our, work, our life works best. We don't have time to really dive into that concept. But the law as a, a gracious entrustment is a good thing. Uh, to, to broaden that statement out, look at uh, Revel, uh, Romans chapter 9. You're already in Romans chapter 3. Take a look just to the right a little bit. Romans chapter 9. Paul broadens this subject out a little bit in this passage as well as in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking of the privilege of being an Israelite or a Jew. Romans 9.1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsmen according to the flesh. Listen to what he says in verse 4. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. He's talking about the blessed state. All the things that God has entrusted to them. What was Israel supposed to do with this entrustment of God's Word? Well, first of all, they were to believe it. Secondly, they were to obey it. And thirdly, they were to proclaim it. Boy, that kind of sounds like the burden on us today. Believe what God has communicated. By God's grace and God's Spirit, obey what God has revealed. And shine as lights in the world. Because our world around us, they desperately need the salvation offered to them through Jesus Christ. Many of them don't know it. Some of them do. Some of them know the emptiness within their soul. Some of them it has not been quite revealed to this point. Our responsibility is to live in light of what God has revealed that the world around us might hunger and thirst for a God who fills that hunger and thirst of righteousness with the righteousness of His Son. Head back to Romans chapter 3. How did they do with this entrustment? They didn't do very well, which is why... When they came out to John the Baptist in the wilderness, he said, Hey, who warned you to flee from the wrath that's to come? What do you mean? We're the children of Abraham. Well, we know what the story of that is. Well, God can of these stones raise up children to Abraham. That is no special thing. There's something more you need 
the gracious gift of God. You need to turn from you and your resources and your way and your lineage and turn to the, the, the one who gifts you with eternal life. Now, that was not a fully developed message there for John the Baptist. It was a, he was a forerunner of the one that was to come. The one upon whom the Spirit descended and remained. The one to whom John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was preparing them for that. But so many Jews, while entrusted with the oracles of God, diminished them by thinking that they were the means, that, that this is the means of eternal salvation. This is not the means of eternal salvation. In here, God reveals how we're saved. This, this does not give you eternal life. As wonderful, as glorious as the inspired Word of God is, it cannot give you of its own accord life. Only God can. We should study God's Word. It's God's Word. We need God's Word. We have to hunger and thirst for God's Word. We need to, to, to desire it as a, a newborn babe desires his, her, his or her mother's milk. We need to desire the, the, the milk of the Word so we can grow by it. But it doesn't save us. It leads us to the One, Jesus Christ, who can save us. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Secondly, as we look through this argument... And Paul is basically doing a a written diatribe. He's saying, well, well, your objection would be like this. Well, well, because circumcision doesn't do me any any good, and because being a physically born Jew doesn't do me any good in your thinking, well, what advantage do I have? Every advantage. You've got the Word. He goes on and says in verses 3 and 4, he speaks about the faithfulness of God that is assured says in verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Let's stop right there for a second. Just before we even dive into this, I want you to notice. Remember the word entrusted has the root word for faith? It's pistuo. He then says in verse 3, What if some were a pistuo? Without faith. What if some were without faith? Does their Ah, pistuo, there without faithedness. Does that nullify or bring to nothing the pistis? Same concept, just a different part of speech. The faithfulness of God. He's using this word and he's trying to drive it home into them. There's, there's a, a necessary faithfulness toward what God has revealed. A faithfulness toward God. God is faithful regardless of whether you are faithful or faithless. His faithfulness is not dependent upon you. Does the unfaithfulness of some dictate to God whether He is faithful or not? Well, that's a good question. If the Jews who received the oracles of God did not trust Him, did not embrace what He had to say, what, what is God going to do? Well, let's, let's think this through and we'll try to do it in short order. God has declared from the beginning that through the seed of Abraham and prior to that the seed of the woman that all the families of the earth would be blessed remember that promise the first promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the ser- the, the seed of the serpent 
That's in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And he made it more specific when you get into Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, where God made this promise to Abram, you're going to come up out from your people, I'm going to do something, and I am going to bless all the nations of the world through your seed. Now it might seem like a plural seed, all of those Israelites, but it's a really singular seed, the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through innumerable displays of rebellion and sinfulness, Israel proved themselves unfaithful. Do we all agree with this? But God, His will is never thwarted. His will cannot be thwarted. He is not dependent upon anyone. You follow the seed through the Old Testament. There were times where the seed of Abraham should have been snuffed out. But God had promised. The seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the Savior of the world was born. His name? His name? Jesus. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He laid down His life as a once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of the world. And He was raised victoriously. Promise fulfilled. And yet there are more promises still to come to fulfillment through our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God has promised to give a land to His people Israel. He promised to preserve them as a people, to give them a new heart. These promises can be seen in page after page of the Old Testament Scripture and being fulfilled time and time again in the New Testament and of course still to come. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 31. They'll be on the screens to my left and right. Uh, This passage stands as a bastion of God's promise. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with whom? The house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar the lord of hosts is his name if this fixed order departs from before me declares the lord then shall the offspring of israel cease from being a nation before me forever thus says the lord if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored then i will cast off the offspring of israel for all that they have done declares the lord My friends, these assurances are based upon the character of God. I will. I will. This will happen. They will. Okay. But, But you're telling me I'm a Jew and I've got no standing and I've been circumcised and I have no future. No, you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. All these things have been recorded for you. Believe. Believe. God will fulfill His promises to Israel. This does not mean, however, that every Jew ever born will experience the benefit of these promises. Paul will continue to make this point throughout his writings that those who experience the forgiveness of sins 
and the declaration by God of righteousness are those who repent of their sin and trust in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. God's promises will not be nullified by the unfaithfulness of some, but His faithfulness will only eternally benefit those who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. My friends, it is such an encouragement and such a comfort to know, to know and to believe that God is faithful. Our lives encounter so many ups, downs, twists, turns. We look at a virus spreading around with forecasting millions of deaths. Who holds your life in his hands? This is not to say to walk into a, a clinic where everyone has been contracted with the coronavirus without a mask and without gloves and without protection. I'm not talking about foolishness. I'm talking about the, who, who holds your life in his hands. You talk about a, an election. We have, oh, I don't even want to get into the nonsense. Please just, Lord, be merciful to us. We are sinners. What, oh my goodness, disaster. Well, who holds your life in his hand? Be encouraged by the gospel truth that Paul shares with Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Will you read that with me? He cannot deny Himself. That means He can't deny His character. And it also at least has implication to this Gospel truth. Friend, when you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you called upon the name of the Lord and you were saved, you were placed into Christ. Him in you, you in Him. He's in God and God in Him. We have a part with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You look around the pages of the New Testament, it tells us if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. So, in other words, every believer has the Spirit of God dwelling in us, right? Ephesians chapter 4, all of those who are believers have the Father of all dwelling in us. We, we, we see that. And then in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 27, this is the, the great hope. It's a mystery. Christ in you. The hope of glory. God cannot deny those who are His. What advantage has a believer? Chiefly in every way. Not only the righteousness of God, the oracles of God, but the guarantee of God's faithfulness to us. Oh, what if I have a bad week? Who didn't? What if I'm having a really bad year? Who hasn't? <laughs> yes. That's a good Sunday school answer. Jesus. <laughs> I agree. He hasn't had a bad day. Uh, but listen, have, have any of you been sinless this year? How about last? Year before? Year before? Year before? Year before? You see, our, our guarantee of heaven is not on whether we've sinned. Our guarantee of heaven is based outside of us. Have you recognized your sin 
and seeing the gravity, the weightiness of it, and turn from your sin. This, this has got nothing to offer me. This, this, I don't want this to rule me. This is not what my desires are. I want to turn away from this. This is not helping. Return. Dear God, I need your grace. I need your mercy. Forgive me and grant me the life. Grant it eternally. That's where our confidence lies. God is faithful. We move a little further in this text. God's truthfulness is unquestionable. God's truthfulness is unquestionable. Look at what it says in verse 4. Uh, well, here's the, we read verse 3 again. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Here's the answer. By no means. The meganoita, the King James says, God forbid, and what we understand it in the Greek to, understand, to, to, to say, let it never be. No way, no way is it possible for God's faithfulness to be nullified. Impossibly. He goes on, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Douglas Moo makes this poignant statement. Not only is God faithful when some are unfaithful, but He remains true even if every person should prove unreliable. God is faithful. God is true. God is a God of truth. He establishes truth. He dispenses truth. And He illuminates truth. The Spirit of God is referred to as the Spirit of truth. Jesus told us that He is the way, the truth, and the life. God's truthfulness is based upon His righteous judgment. And thus, we have Paul making reference in verse 4 to David's confession of sin in Psalm 51. Now, I'll just briefly set the context. You'll remember, having sinned adulterously with Bathsheba and having sinned murderously against Uriah the Hittite, Nathan comes to David and tells him a story about you remember the story about this this poor little guy with his one little lamb and this other guy with his many lambs and he has a, someone visit and the guys that are taking from his abundance comes and steals this one guy this guy's one little cute sweet sleeping sleeping with him ewe lamb and he kills that ewe lamb and serves it to his guest what should be done oh he needs to pay he, he he's going to have wrath upon wrath and David points and says, you are the man. Oh, oh, wait a second. Oh, you had more in mind than this little story, didn't you? I am that man who stole someone's precious one. It's me. It's me, oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. And so we have Psalm 51 as a a record of David's confession of his sin. We only have time for just verses 3 and 4 that contains this clip where it says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I look to the left, I look to the right, I turn around, there it is, I can't get away from it. Against you, and you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. I'm admitting it. I I agree with you, God. I I understand what I've done. I see my sin. I can't shake it. Please forgive me, he'll say later. But here he says, so that you may be justified in your words 
and blameless in your judgment. David recognized the truthful, righteous judgment of God. And what we need to know here, by way of application, and I'd really like for our millennials and Zoomers to really ratchet their attention up. I am a generation Xer. Not as good as the boomers. Not part of the greatest generation, but I'm not part of the dumbest one either. Oh, 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 oh. Obviously, you know I'm kidding. Seriously, no. Anyone and anything that contradicts what God has clearly said in His Word must be rejected. Our world has attempted to make truth relative. But it is not. It's not. God judges in accordance with His Word. Let God be true. And anyone in opposition must be declared false. God's truthfulness is unquestionable. We move a little further in his argument. God's righteousness is unflinching. God's righteousness is unflinching. Paul has worked diligently leading up to this point, proving that all are guilty before God. And he's going to resume that conversation in verses 9 through 20. One of the points that Paul has made in this process is that the sinfulness of man brings out, this is very important, the sinfulness of man brings out elements of God's character that would not otherwise shine as brightly. He tells us in chapter 1 and verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed. Why? Because of the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. So men's ungodliness and righteousness makes something of God shine. All right. In chapter 2 and verse 4, he tells us that because of man's sin and God's patience with it, God has seemed to be kind and forbearing and patient. This is a result of His patience with people's sinfulness. In chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So God's righteousness is on display because of man's sinfulness. Now, with that having already been set in place, the objector to Paul's theology that you need to turn from your sin and believe the Gospel... That you, whether you're a Gentile, apart with God, from God, whether you know from your conscience the good things to do, or whether you see from, from what God has revealed in nature that God is real, or whether you have the oracles of God, you need to turn to God for salvation because you are all sinners and you are all in need of the grace of God. Well, well what good is being a Jew? Well, he's already answered that. Now he goes on to say, well, okay, you've told us, you've told us in your own teaching that I've done God a favor. His wrath is being revealed because of something I've done. And His uh, patience is being revealed because of something I've done. And His uh, righteous judgment is being revealed because of something I've done. I've done Him a favor. People now know these things about God they wouldn't have known otherwise. Well, is that what he says? Well, it's kind of what he says right here. But if our unrighteousness serves 
to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I've done him a favor. This is his argument, not not Paul's. (laughs) His opponent. And he's going to bring the same argument up at the end of this little section. Paul can barely even spit this out without saying, I speak in a human way. This is not true. This is not right. If you're correct in your reasoning, God can't punish me for my sin because I've done Him a favor of revealing something about Him. God's righteousness is now on display. Paul is so repulsed by it, you can't get the words on the paper without writing, by no means. But then he follows it up with, God forbid. Let it never be. No way. This is not. This is not the way. So Paul's teaching has been mischaracterized in his opponent's mind. And he says it again in verses 7 8. Look at what it says. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Ha! Huh. Here's the logical conclusion. Here's what I should do. Why not do evil so good may come? And here's how you know this is not his thinking. As some have slanderously charged us with saying. And then he condemns it by saying their condemnation is just. Alright, there's a lot here. This is, this, is, this is tough sledding. Most commentators say this is the hardest part of uh, the book of Romans. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. Their condemnation is just. He offers a similar retort between both of these mischaracterizations of his gospel preaching. In verse 6, if God doesn't judge unrighteous Israel, how can he judge the world? Look at what he says. Verse 6, by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? Now, we don't have time to turn there. I'm just going to read to you Psalm 98. And this is one of many texts that say essentially the same thing. Psalm 98, verses 8 and 9. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth, listen carefully, He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity, justice. God judges righteously. This is Paul's retort to his opponent. This concept is taught clearly in Romans chapter 2. He's already said it in verses 5-11. through Look there with me please, just for a moment. Romans 2, 5 through 11. He says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but who obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress. Listen carefully. For every human, every human being who does evil. Uh Uh-oh. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. Listen. For God shows how much partiality? None. God shows no partiality. The solution to their terrible dilemma 
is not to double down on their natural heritage or to remember some religious ceremony that they had been part of. That's not the solution. But rather repent. Look at chapter 2. You're already in chapter 2? Look at verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Who? Who is led to repentance through God's kindness? Who is supposed to? Well, if you want to ask Paul that question in Acts chapter 17, he says, here's the message. Everyone, everywhere, God is called to repent. Did you know that? Acts chapter 17. If you, don't, if you don't believe me, read Acts chapter 17, particularly the second half. It's around verse 29 or so. Everyone, everywhere, must repent. The solution is not to double down on my heritage. The solution is not to double down on some religious experience that I had some, someday yesteryear. It's to repent and to believe. To believe. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Repentance and faith repentance of our sin, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the recipe to deal with this problem that Paul is presenting. What is he presenting? You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Some people don't think they need salvation and they will not, they will not repent and they will not believe. Paul points out that while they have an advantage having been entrusted with the oracles of God, God is faithful Yes, that's true. His faithfulness leads to eternal life for all those who know they need His salvation. Now I'm going to bring you to what may be an obscure reference to you. I I don't know. Maybe you know it well. I don't know. Zechariah 12. Now the the context of Zechariah 12 is, is leading toward God bringing about the fulfillment of the new covenant where all Israel that are left are saved. Now, it's very interesting how he does this. Listen to what he says in Zechariah 12, 10-14. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Stop right there in the reading. He says there's a coming day where people will turn. They'll recognize their need. They'll recognize that they are the ones that are responsible for Jesus once for all. Sin-canceling. Sin-curing sacrifice of Himself on the cross. They'll turn, they'll repent and believe. Now how does it happen? On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning from Hadad, Ramon, in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn. Listen, each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites 
uh, by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Now, well, you're talking about families. No, no, no. We're talking about people. In order to, to have the redemption offered is a person recognizes, I need it. I need it. Not, it's not daddies to make the decision and everyone follows. You, a sinner, need to turn from your sin and recognize that there's available salvation in Jesus Christ. That requires a turning. And that requires belief. And so it is with the church. Coming into church week by week, there is an advantage. You're hearing the Gospel. And you're seeing Gospel people, Lord willing, living out Gospel truth in your presence. Singing the Gospel. Praying about the Gospel. Reading about the Gospel. Studying God's Word about the Gospel. That's an advantage. The preaching of the Gospel should always exalt our glorious God. It should always magnify the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it should always undermine our confidence in the flesh. But just because you are advantaged to be in a Gospel preaching place does not ensure you have the possession of that Gospel blessing. What advantage then? Well, there's an advantage. But the advantage in its full blossom is after you turn from your sin and turn to Christ for salvation that He offers. Those who are truly born again as as we hear the Gospel or preach it, our hearts swell with affection for God, with gratitude for our salvation. We see, I know you do, we see areas in our lives that, that we still struggle in. And this produces a different kind of repentance. Not a repentance unto salvation, but a repentance unto communion. Communion with God. It's a a righteous communion. It's a communion that results in the Spirit of God gracing within us and enabling us to do what God has told us in His Word, to obey the truth of the Word. As we leave this paragraph, this short passage that we've looked at this morning, what I think we have to understand is that God is faithful and God is just. God is faithful and God is just. Now, as soon as you hear that, you're a Bible person, so you're immediately thinking of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just. So it means he'll do it every time. And just, he has the right to do it because it's been satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What God speaks is true. What God does is right. And what God promises, he is faithful to fulfill. The benefits of these sturdy characteristics of God are experienced through faith. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you have not, today could be that day where you turn from your sin and turn to Christ and receive forever forgiveness of sin and a forever declaration of your righteousness. So you never wonder. You'll understand what Romans 8.1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
If you are a believer, you have turned to Christ and you know that you have uh, an eternity that's set with the Lord because of Jesus' perfect work for you. We also respond to this recognizing that everything God says is true. Everything God has promised He will bring to pass. We only have to wait and look to Him. And God's judgment, the way He deals with us, will always be right. And so we can rejoice in this, but also recognize that there's always going to be opposition coming up against it, sometimes from within us, and sometimes, many times, from without us. Upon what, or better stated, whom do you stand? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have this privilege of being confident in what you have revealed. Help us not to trust in ourselves. That would be a a faulty place. Help us to turn from ourselves and our resources. Help us to trust in you. Help us to recognize that what you've done for us through Jesus Christ is enough. It's sufficient. And it's life-giving. We pray for each one of us, believer and unbeliever, that you do your work in us now. In Jesus' name, amen.